in a room this size that most of us have probably experienced the joy that comes from trying to get through to a customer service department on the telephone. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone through this experience. I equate it somewhat to trying to navigate a motorcycle on the parkway in fog during leaf season. First of all, you you have to push buttons before you ever talk to somebody. And you have to go one for English and two for this problem and four. If you have fat fingers like mine, be very careful because once you hit the wrong button, then you have to go back to the beginning and start over. And so you finally push and get to talk to somebody. And you begin to explain to them your problems, explain what your issue is. And you give them your whole spiel and they listen to all of it. And then they say, let me transfer you to that department. And they put you on hold and you listen to music for a little while. And someone else comes on, and you go through your whole spiel all again. Here's my problem, and here's what I'm dealing with. And they say something like, oh, you really need to talk to this department. And they put you back on hold, and you go through all of that. And every time you talk to somebody, you have to repeat the same thing over and over and over again. And I don't know if it's just me, but it seems like most of the people that I talk to in customer service, English is maybe their third language or fourth language because we don't communicate back and forth. And so finally, I'm trying to tell them what my problem is and they are not understanding it. So I end up yelling, thinking that if I yell, maybe that helps them understand. And then they begin to explain to me how to fix my problem, whether it's the TV or dish or my telephone phone or a computer, whatever I'm trying to fix, they are explaining it to me and I am not understanding it. Such is the joy of dealing with customer service department. Amen. If you work in a customer service department, no, nothing against, but that's just our experience. And that experience, that process to me is very similar to what early Christians in the Middle Ages, the 6th through the 16th century, experienced in their pursuit of having a relationship with Christ. They had to go through something very similar to what you and I go through trying to get customer service. And in reality, they weren't even having a relationship with Jesus as much as they were having a relationship with the church. For most in the church in the Middle Ages, they could not read a Bible on their own. We learned last week that the Latin translation came out in 400 AD and for a thousand years that was the only translation in the church and only those who could read Latin could read a Bible. So those wanting a relationship to Christ had to go and hear from somebody else what it meant to be a Christian. Their standing in the church, their, their place in the church was determined not by how committed they were, but how much money they gave to the church. The more money, the better seat you had. The more attention the priest or preacher would pay to you, the less, the further back, or even having to stand. Your security of your salvation, whether or not you were saved, was not based on Jesus Christ, but based on whether or not you followed the sacraments. Whether you jumped through these hoops, and and if you missed a sacrament, then you probably had to come back and pay an indulgence. It was a payment to the church that allowed the priest to give you a do-over. You got to go back and pretend you followed the sacraments. If they wanted to confess their sins, they had to go to a priest who determined whether or not those sins deserved to be forgiven. And if they did, then the priest determined what you had to do to experience that forgiveness. The acts of contrition, 
Their prayers were not heartfelt prayers, but rather memorized prayers. And most of the time, the prayers were to the church or to Mary or to one of the saints. And you memorize these prayers and you would rotely repeat these prayers as part of your relationship to Christ. And you would repeat these rote prayers over and over and over again in the hopes that whoever you were praying to, Mary or the saint or the church, would then go to Jesus and offer your request, and then Jesus, in return, would go to God. And hopefully, through that process, God would answer your request. And we saw last week, because of that, this led people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and Wycliffe to begin to examine the Scripture, but also to examine the church. And as they read the Scripture and they began to look at the practices of the church, they began to see that the two were very far apart. And this led to what we call today the Protestant Reformation. But in reality, it was a theological revolution against the abuses and control of the established church. It was their cry for the church to come back to what the Scripture said. It was their cry to reform the church so that people in the pews and people that were out in the world could hear the message of Jesus Christ. But no matter how much they tried, the church did not reform. So that led those men to go and form their own churches, their own denominations. And it's from that reformation, from that decision to go out and form what became Protestant churches where Baptist churches get their heritage. In the early Reformation, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, a group sprung out called the Antibaptists or the Separatists. And they were called Anabaptists because they were against people being baptized as children. They believed that baptism came by immersion after salvation. And so they were being rebaptized. So people called them the Anabaptists for rebaptism. And out of that Anabaptist and Separatist group came what we call Baptists and who we are today. And as I said earlier in this sermon series, This Is Us, we are building a foundation of who we are as a church. But before we examine who we are as a church, we need to examine what we believe. And in doing that, we are looking at what exactly Baptists believe and why it's important, or if it's important. Because as a Baptist church, there are certain principles that are distinctively Baptist. And they are important. And they are important for us to know. And Now, I told you I'm going to be talking about five distinctives. And I gave one last week, another one today, and another one the next couple of weeks. Not all churches ignore these distinctives. Some denominations and other churches besides Baptists may have one or two or three of these. But no one but Baptists hold to all five of these distinctives. It's what makes us Baptist. And last week I introduced the first of those distinctives that we call biblical authority. What that means is that as Baptists, we believe that the Bible alone is our source of authority. That when it comes to our faith and it comes to our faith practices, we trust the Bible alone. Not the Bible in the church, not the Bible in tradition, not the Bible in creeds, or the Bible in councils, or the Bible in experience, or the Bible in reason, or the Bible in culture. We believe that Scripture interprets Scripture, and we stand alone on the Bible. Now, when I talked about that last week, I don't know that I did a good enough job explaining why that's important for you. Because I want you to understand that knowing that, knowing that we stand on biblical authority in the Bible alone, nothing else elevated to its level, that when you hear of other Christian groups or other denominations that make decisions or do something as a church or as a denomination that sounds to you like it doesn't line up with Scripture or it sounds to you like it may be unbiblical, you need to recognize that they based that decision not on Scripture alone, but they based it 
it on elevating something else with Scripture, culture and Scripture, reason and Scripture. And so when they make those decisions, you recognize that's how they got there. But as Baptists, we stand on this idea of scriptural authority. And we get that from Martin Luther's 95 Thesis that we've talked about that he nailed to that Wittenberg door on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago this past October. And in that, he outlined principles that he believed were the foundation of the Reformation. And the first one was that idea of biblical authority. And it's in Latin, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And last week I also mentioned a couple of others. I mentioned sola fidea and sola gratia, which in Latin, we are saved by faith alone and through grace alone. This morning I want to introduce another of those solas. There's five that in Latin Martin Luther, the Reformation, is foundationally built around. This idea that I want to introduce this morning is where Baptist churches get the principle of priesthood of the believer. You won't find that if you go and look in your concordance. Where is priesthood of the believer or priesthood of all Christ followers? Most of us don't even understand what that means, much less why it's important. But it is a foundational principle for Baptists. And it's foundational because it's found in something Martin Luther discovered when he started the Protestant Reformation. It's based on this idea of solus Christus that we just sang about, Christ alone. And what made Luther's statement so revolutionary is, is not what he was saying to the church, but it was that little Latin phrase, sola, which meant only or alone. What Luther was saying is that it's Scripture alone and faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. And there's another one, Gloria de Gratia, which means glory only to God. And he's saying only, only, only. And that is what made it so crazy. Because in the church at that time, it was Scripture and the church or tradition. It was Christ and the priest or those that were spiritual. It was faith and works. It was grace and deserving. It was glory to the church and glory to all of those in the church and glory to God. And Martin Luther came along and said, that does not match up to Scripture. What happened in that thousand-year period from to 500 to 1500 that we call the Middle Ages, as the church began to develop and it began to grow, there grew a separation in the church. The separation between what the church labeled as spiritual, and those were the priests and the bishops and the spiritual workers in the church, and those that they called temporal. And that was everybody else. And they began to example what they did as priests or bishops after the Old Testament Levitical priests. They began to say, we're in a new covenant, but we're going to practice as priests just like the Old Testament priests did. And we will be the dispensers of spiritual things. And they developed a hierarchy so that you had the spiritual people up here and everybody else down here. The priests and the bishops and the leaders in the church were spiritual because they could read Latin. They could read the Bible. And understand what it says. So they were better than everybody else. And they began to pattern things in the church to develop that separation. They started wearing robes and stoles and collars so that people could see them. And when you saw them, you recognized they were not like everybody else. They were special. We raised the platform. And so they wore robes and they elevated and they put up rails. That's why if you go in some of those churches today, you'll find rails. Because it was just another way to separate. And they began to think of themselves as more spiritual than anybody else. They became the gatekeepers to everything spiritual. And as this began to develop, they became the mediators, the, the person between those in the church and God. They were the physical representation, what they claim, of Jesus Christ in the earth. 
And you can imagine the fertile ground that this allowed for manipulation and for corruption. And it was rampant in the church. Because if I'm the spiritual leader and I'm separated from you and I hear from God for you, then what I say must be pretty important. You better listen to what I say. And if I am God's representation on this earth and I hold your eternity in my hand, whether you go to heaven or hell is determined by me and how I look at you and what I think about you, then I'm a pretty special person. And you can imagine how those priests begin to manipulate that and begin to use that and the corruption that spread in the church. So Luther, because of that, began to study passages in Scripture. And he began to read passages like the one I read earlier from 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is only one God and one mediator between God and man. That man, Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. There's only one high priest. He began to read in Hebrews where it talks about Jesus being the great high priest. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, which is the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that was opened to us through the curtain. What curtain? That is Jesus' body. And since we have a great priest now over the house of God. Who is that priest? Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.11 says, When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That was His own sacrifice, not of human hands, not a part of this creation, through His self, His death. That high priest paid the price. In Hebrews 7.24, But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to Him through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. And as he read this stuff, Martin Luther began to realize that the church teachings about this hierarchy and the church teachings about preacher or a priest or someone being a go-between between the people in the pew and God was not scriptural. Because the scripture clearly says that there is no other mediator but Christ. There is no other priest except Christ. And everyone who accepts Jesus Christ and gives their life to Christ now has access to God. That was revolutionary. And it's revolutionary today. Do you understand how crazy it is to recognize that you and I right now have direct access to God? In the Old Testament, the only person who had access to the presence of God was the high priest, and he only went in one time a year. One time a year, he would go in through the Holy of Holies, and they'd tie a rope around his leg with bells. Because if he was living in sin, or if he was corrupt, when he got into the presence of God, he would be killed instantly, and when the bells stopped, they would drag him out. But now, because of Jesus Christ, you and I don't have to go through the veil. The Bible says when Jesus died on the cross and said, It is finished, the veil in the Holy of Holies ripped in two from the top to the bottom, where God ripped it. And now you and I, as believers in Christ, have direct access to God anytime, anywhere, any place. Because you see, you don't need to go to a priest. You don't need to go to a special church. You don't have to say special prayers and special words. God hears you and listens to you and allows you in His presence right now. And that is an incredible privilege that most in the church take for granted today. For most of the people living in that thousand-year period that claimed Christianity, that pursued God, that God spoke to them, they felt like they could not go and experience God's presence on their own. And all of us in this room have that privilege, yet most of us waste it. All of us have that privilege that we can be in the presence of the Creator of the world in an instant. 
And yet we walk away. Today, all of us, because of Jesus Christ, can enter into the presence. You can talk to Him anytime. You can listen to Him anytime. Now you can understand how revolutionary and crazy that was to the church in Luther's day. Because what it did, it tore down the hierarchy. There was no longer a need for this super spiritual class that did everything because anyone could come to God. You didn't need the church. You didn't need the sacraments of the church. You didn't need to do all that work and and all that service to try to earn your way into the presence of God. Simply because Jesus Christ died, you and I now can go into His presence. And the church tried to shut it up as best they could. They killed and they persecuted, burned at the stake anyone who taught anything different. But Martin Luther was not deterred. John Calvin was not deterred. Wycliffe in England was not deterred. And they continued to to search the Scripture. And, And as they searched the Scripture, this began to unlock some passages that they had never seen before. Because this idea that you and I are now access to God began to change the way you do church. And so passages... Like our passage that I've listed today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 10. It had always been interpreted one way, and now in light of this idea of Christ alone, Scriptus Christus, it changed everything. And so I want you to listen. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 4, but really 9 and 10 are the keys, and they're in your order of service. It says, As you come to Him, the living stone, talking about Jesus, rejected by man, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. What is that spiritual house? It's the church. You are now being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You... Not me, not the priest, not the pope, not the bishop. He said, you are a priesthood, a special priesthood, offering sacrifices acceptable to God. He says, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay in stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that makes men stumble like a rock and will cause them to fall. It says, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But as for you, verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. What he's saying, and and Luther had always read that as being that holy priesthood. It had to be the priest. It had to be the special spiritual people. And now, in the idea that Christ alone gave us access, he began to reread it to understand that he is not talking about just a special group of people that, that are priests. He is talking about everyone who claims the name Jesus Christ. A royal priesthood. John says the same thing in the book of Revelations during his doxology in Revelation 1, 5 and 6. It says, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and to be priest to serve his God the Father. So Luther began to recognize that every person that is a Christian that gives their life to Jesus Christ is now a priest. There's no special class of people that they alone are supposed to do the ministry 
There's no special class of people that rule the church. There's no special class of people that make the decisions spiritually for everybody else. There's no special class of people that are more spiritually in touch with God. Everybody has the same access. Everybody can hear from God on their own. But he also said something unique there. We had the same access and the same privileges because of Jesus Christ, but we also have equal potential to serve God. You see, what it means is you and I, as priests, now can serve Jesus Christ. We now get to serve Jesus Christ. And I don't think you believe that. I don't think you understand what that means. We struggle with the idea that God sees us as priests. But it says clearly in Peter's word that you are a royal priesthood. John tells us that every person is a priest before God. So you are a priest. Say it with me. I'm a priest. You didn't say it. One, two, three. I'm a priest. You're a priest. Now before you go to get fitted for your collar, let me warn you of a couple of things. That word in Latin, priest, means bridge builder. Somebody that brings together two groups of people. Somebody that reconciles those who are separated. Redeems those who are separated. Doesn't mean I'm the bridge. Jesus Christ is the bridge. But it does mean that I have a responsibility to help build and introduce and give glory to the bridge so that others who are searching can find Him. I'm a builder. I bring together those that are lost with the one who can save. That's our job. That's who we are. But he also said how we can do that. Did, did you hear it back in verse 4 in the passage I read in First Peter? What did he say in verse 4? Being built into a spiritual house, the church, you are a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The priest, you have a responsibility, not only as a bridge builder, but now you offer sacrifices, just like the Old Testament priest. So what sacrifices is he talking about? What sacrifices do we offer? Well, I seem to remember Paul telling the Romans something about a sacrifice in Romans chapter 12 when we studied it. Therefore, I urge you, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, for that is your spiritual act of worship. You know what sacrifice God expects from His priest? He expects your life. Now, he's not talking about to get saved here. He's talking to Christians, people that have already said, I surrender all. But God in reality knows when you said, I surrender all, it didn't mean I surrender all. It meant I surrender what I think of right now. And what Paul is reminding us in Romans, what Peter is reminding us here in 1 Peter, is that as a royal priesthood, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. And the first sacrifice we offer is our life. We're to say, God, take it all, everything. Take my dreams and my hopes and my wants and my desires and my plans and my relationships and my bank account and my job and my kids and my spouse. God, take it all. Offer your lives. But another Offering we can make is our obedience. If we really believe what we talked about last week, that sola scriptura, that the Bible is God's spoken word, then we probably should be obeying it. James says, don't just be hearers, be doers. A sacrifice that you can offer to God is by being obedient. He also says we can offer our, our worship. What Paul says in Romans 12, 1, it's our spiritual act of worship. What does worship mean? It doesn't mean just what we did earlier. Worship means showing Him His worth. You offer your sacrifice of worship by allowing God to see and the world to see what He's worth to you by the way that you live. If people were looking at you this week and they saw how you lived, what would they think God is worth to you? It means you to do everything you can to the glory of God. You've probably heard that somewhere. 
everything I do, give Him glory. We can offer Him our lives and our obedience and our worship. And then lastly, we can offer Him our service. You and I now get to do what He called us to do. We can take the gifts that He's given us and the talent that He's given us and the passion that He's given us and we can use it for His kingdom. That's what He says is the priest's responsibility. We don't just have the privilege of a priest, we have the responsibility. And it's not just a special group of spiritual people. It's every believer. Now understand, when we talk about spiritual people, all of us are at different levels in our maturity. All of us are closer or further away from God at different points in our life. But that maturity level has nothing to do with your access to God or your ability to serve God. Now as we grow, we learn more about Him, but it doesn't change our access. We all have the same access, and we all have the same ability to serve. We can all do the things that God's called us to do. And it's those two principles. Christ alone is our mediator and the sole authority over the church and the understanding that every Christian is a priest and has direct access to God, can hear from God, can speak to God, and is called to serve Him that form what Baptists call the priesthood of the believer. Those two things. Christ alone, you're a priest. And that principle is what guides us in how we do church. That's why when Martin Luther started teaching some of these things, the church rebelled because it would change the whole way they did church. And so these Reformation churches, as they were being formed, began to say, we're going to keep in mind that every person is a priest and also that every person has access to God. So the people that we put over the church as shepherds of the church, they need to understand that they don't have the biblical or scriptural authority over people. Only Jesus Christ does. And in Christianity, there are three models of how the church is governed. Three models. Every Christian church is governed in one of three ways. There's what is called the Episcopal model, and all the authority over the decision-making in the church rests with the bishop or a group of bishops. If you elevate one bishop higher than all the bishops, then he has final say for everything the church does. In the Roman Catholic Church, that's the Pope. In other denominations, it's not a pope, it's a group of bishops. The Orthodox Church, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, they all work through an Episcopal system. Then there's the Presbyterian system. That says that the ultimate authority for ruling and running the church rests with a group of elders. In a local church, it's called a session of elders. When it's several churches that come together and join together, it's called a presbytery. And that presbytery has final say over everything in the church. They determine how the church is run and how the church is governed. They have final authority. And then the last group is congregational. And congregational, each church is independent and autonomous. And the final authority for how the church is run stands with the people. Because as a congregational church, you stand on the principle that every person can hear from God. That every person hears what God is leading us as a church to do. So every person has a say. And as Baptists, we are congregational. That's how we run our church. There is not a bishop that tells us what to do. There is not a presbytery that tells us what to do. We are autonomous. No one tells us what to do except the members of this church. They determine how we run things. Now you hope with that idea that everybody in the church comes praying to see what the Holy Spirit's leading us to do, but that's not always the case. It's not perfect. 
There is not a perfect system. And that's been abused in the congregational churches and in Baptist churches. You get a group of people that want to manipulate and control the church and they stir everything up. And you've got a lot of people that don't even know who God is, much less His will, trying to come in and control the decisions that the church has. But we're willing to take that risk to be able to stand on the principle that every person is a priest. As a Baptist church, we believe that even pastors don't have the spiritual authority over the church. I don't run the church. I don't rule the church. In a Baptist church, the pastor is a shepherd. That means he guides and he leads and he feeds and he protects and he equips. But the pastor is accountable to the congregation and to Christ. The deacons don't run the church. In the congregational setup, the deacons are the servant of the church. Now, some churches give them more power, but that's up to any church's decision. Churches can decide that, not me and not you. And you see, I understand as a pastor, and we're seeing more and more churches turn over that spiritual authority from the church to pastors. You're beginning to see pastor run or deacon run or elder run churches. And that goes against everything that Baptists stand for. That's why sometimes you hear me when I'm up here and I say things like, the Holy Spirit is leading me to tell you, or Jesus wants me to tell you, or God wants me to tell you. I do it with hesitation. Because there's a tendency in people's minds when you hear somebody in a place of spiritual teaching or leading say, God told me to tell you, and they say it over and over and over again. There's a a mindset that begins to develop where you think the only way you can really hear from God is through that person. Because they keep saying, God told me to tell you, and God didn't tell me that. See, any time that I teach something, any time that I preach something, any time you come and ask me and I say something like, the Holy Spirit is leading me, you need to understand I'm speaking from God, not for God. And there's a huge difference. When I say God wants me to help you know this, it needs to be confirmed in Scripture, and you better find it in Scripture. And most of the time, whatever I tell you, the Holy Spirit's already working on you anyway. That's why on Sunday mornings when some of you are walking out and you say, Pastor, you stepped all over my toes and and you beat me up today. Or, Pastor, did you read my mail and know what was going on at my house this week? No, the Holy Spirit's been working on you and He puts on my heart something to say that He knows will spur you to think about it. But that doesn't give me spiritual authority over you. You are your own spiritual authority under Jesus Christ. Now, let me close. I'm going to give you a couple of warnings just like I did last week. Because there's ways that this can be abused. Sadly today, many Christians have a tendency to elevate Christian speakers or pastors or other religious people to a place of spiritual authority over them. We get to the place where we worship them and we idolize them. They're the best and and I I really only learn when he is teaching or she is teaching. Or we get people in our lives that are close to us and we feel like they are so spiritual and we are not spiritual. And they begin to speak into our lives. And there's nothing wrong with people speaking into your life. There's nothing wrong with people teaching you. But when you give them spiritual authority over you to think that they hear from God for you when you can't, that's dangerous. Because you open yourself up to be manipulated and used. And you see that in churches where people worship the pastor or they think the pastor has all the spiritual authority. Because if the pastor has the authority and there is no accountability to the people out there, then I can say whatever I want to say. Get up here and say, God told me to give me a raise this week. Amen? You say, that's funny. It happens. And nobody questions it. Nobody says. And maybe he did deserve a raise or a new car or whatever it is that he felt like God told him to tell the church to give him. But... If that was from God, then the people in the pew would have known it before he ever got up to say it. See, when you give somebody a place of spiritual instead of Jesus Christ, you're on dangerous ground. That's where cults come from. 
But there's also a warning on the other side. You Sometimes people think this idea of me being a priest means that I can interpret Scripture however I want. If I hear from God and I can talk to God, then I can read this book and interpret it however I, I feel. Wrong. Because that goes against the principle we talked about last week. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. When you begin to interpret it however you feel, what you've done is you've elevated yourself above Scripture. And then there's another group of people that say, well, I'm my own priest, so I can live however I want. i got no accountability to anybody. I can just do whatever, live however I want, because I, I'm direct access to God. I'm my own priest. Wrong. Even as a priest, you are still accountable to the high priest. You're still accountable to Jesus Christ. This is an incredible principle that so many in the church don't understand. It's a great privilege, but it also carries some great responsibility. That passage I read earlier from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, it finishes in 21. It said, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Do you understand that means that everyone in this room that is a Christian, through Jesus Christ, you've been given the honor to go to the throne room of God and speak to God. And the Bible says He listens. He didn't put you on hold. He doesn't send you to the next person. You don't have to punch in a bunch of... You just have to say, God. And no matter where you are, no matter what pitch you find your life in, no matter what, what ditch you've rolled off in in life, no matter what struggles you're going through, no matter where you are, all you've got to do is call out His name. And the Bible says He is there with you. That is an incredible privilege that we take for granted. But it also comes with great responsibility. We're responsible to offer sacrifices to offer our life, to offer our obedience, to offer our worship, to offer our service. This principle, sola Christos, in the next hundred years, 200 years, 300 years after Martin Luther pronounced this, thousands upon thousands of Christians were martyred. They died for their faith. Because the established church didn't want it. And so in Germany and Switzerland and England and in France and in Italy and then in all the way into the colonies, people were persecuted, people were ostracized, people were burned at the stake simply because they wanted to follow what Scripture said. And because of that, Christ alone, solus Christos, you and I cannot take it lightly. And you and I need not take it for granted. Christ alone. It matters. Let's pray.